0: today is uh, is my last sermon in this series in the psalms um, get kind of a, a bonus message next week uh, jeff Shadowin and and his wife mary are are uh, retiring fec missionaries from the basque country and they're going to be visiting with us next sunday and, and as Jeff and I were discussing their visit, we, we talked about the possibility of him preaching during the service. And uh, because he makes it a regular practice to read through the book of Psalms, uh, I welcomed him to give the sermon next week. And so he's, he's going to preach on two Psalms that are especially meaningful to him. So today's my last sermon in the, uh, in the Psalms this summer. And, and I have to say that it's been a series that has been good for me personally. Um, prior to this summer, I've, I've always been a bit ambivalent, maybe, about the Psalms. I, I've appreciated them as part of the Bible, but I don't know that I really appreciated them for what they, what they are. Um, but as the result of uh, my study throughout this series and, and, and the road that our extended family has walked since Christian's death at the beginning of the summer, I, I've come to discover a depth to the Psalms that I just hadn't experienced personally before. Um, and, and, and so I trust that, that for all of us, our, our time in the Psalms has been beneficial to our relationship with God as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always trusting that God, that that God is providing the direction I need as I as I seek to discern what to preach on in in my sermons and what to teach on in other settings, and and in looking back over this series, uh, it, it just seems clear to me that God, God knew where we and where I needed to be this summer and gave direction accordingly. Um, so, we'll, and and maybe to give you a little bit of a teaser for what's coming next. Uh, so Jeff Shadowin's here next week. In two weeks, we'll be starting through the book of James together. So if you want to do any kind of preparatory reading in that five-chapter book, you, uh, you sure can do that in the next couple weeks. Uh, but today, we're still in the Psalms. And so before I get to our specific Psalm for today, I want to give a quick recap of last week. Uh, because I'm going to be making some connections between Psalm 62 today and Psalm 11 from last week. So, so if you weren't here, I, I just want to do my best to, to catch you up real quick. Um, last week in Psalm 11, we noted that David began the psalm by stating that it was in the Lord that he takes refuge. Uh, and, and David's taking refuge in the Lord seemed to be contradicting to the suggestions of his advisors. Uh, when the wicked surrounded David and threatened him, his advisors told him, flee to the mountains. Get out of here. Do what, do whatever you can do to remove yourself from the danger that you're facing. They believed that wickedness had overtaken David and his kingdom and surrounded him, so there was nothing left to do but flee to the mountains. David, however, saw another path forward. He believed that God could provide refuge that he needed and he gave his reasons for believing that God could provide that refuge. David stated that it was the Lord who reigns. So the wicked in the world did not ultimately reign. It was God who reigns. David stated that the Lord sees. He knows everything going on in the world. He does not miss a thing. David stated that the Lord judges, so in addition to knowing everything that goes on, he will bring those spreading wickedness to justice. And then finally, David stated that the Lord blesses, that those who put their trust in God, live in the righteousness of God given to them, will know the favor and presence of the Lord in an ever deeper way. So so when facing the wickedness of this world, as David led us to understand, we ought to take refuge in the Lord rather than fleeing to whatever safe place we might attempt to create for ourselves. So Psalm 62, which we will examine today, likewise talks about finding refuge in God, but it's in a slightly different context. Psalm 11 spoke about finding refuge in God in the face of general wickedness that that seems to expand across our world. Psalm 62, I believe, speaks about finding refuge in God in the face of specific, spiteful, hateful attacks directed toward us precisely because we seek refuge in God. So in other words, attacks directed toward us because of our faith in God and our enemies desire to see God defeated. If we think about Ephesians chapter six, we're told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so as participants in that struggle, we have an enemy who most definitely wants to see us destroyed. And so when we put our faith in God and look for refuge in him, we can expect to face opposition from that enemy, maybe even increasing opposition because of of, uh, our faith in God. So I would encourage you to turn with me to Psalm 62, and we're going to see what David talks about here, again, finding refuge in God. And David really sets the stage in Psalm 62 in the first two verses by proclaiming, like he did in Psalm 11, where he seeks refuge. So Psalm 62 verses 1 and 2 say this, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, if you were to read Psalm 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, you'd see a common theme running through each one of those. And that theme is security in God. And then in the first two verses of Psalm 62, it's clear that David looks for security in God and God alone. His soul waits for God alone. From God comes his salvation. God alone is his rock and salvation and fortress. He he shall not be greatly shaken. Uh, I came across a quote from uh, the 19th century English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He famously referred to Psalm 62 as the only psalm. So not only in the sense that there aren't any other psalms, but only in the sense that six times in this psalm, David uses the Hebrew word that is translated into English as, as only or, or alone, one of those. And so you see it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, 5, 6, um, and again in verse 9. And verse 9 is a little tricky in the ESV because translation says uh, those of low estate are but a breath but it's the same hebrew word so you could say they're only a breath so so this is the only psalm as as uh, charles spurgeon would would refer to it so in the first two verses david tells us that in god alone does his soul wait and and god alone is his rock and salvation and fortress i mean the, the statement which david makes here is one of confidence can't you hear it and what he's saying? He's confident in who God is. And, and I almost, rightly or wrongly, I, I picture him making this statement with his head held high and maybe his chest puffed out a little bit because he's so confident in, in who God is. And it's, it's, maybe, it's maybe a little like the, the boy on the playground who gets roughed up by his classmates and runs off to find his older brother. And, and it, you know, it, it, when he returns walking in front of his older brother, older, much bigger brother, right? He, he, he walks with a swagger that he didn't have a few minutes ago. Like, I think David rightly places his confidence in the security that God alone can and does provide. But it's one thing to place our confidence in God when things are going well and, and when life is moving along at a nice, easy pace, and there's a gentle breeze blowing. But it's a whole other thing when when the winds are howling and our enemy seeks to attack us because of our trust in God. And I think that's what David references in verses 3 and 4. So let's look at what he says there. So, after his confident statement in 1 and 2, he says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So, David's enemies are out to see him knocked down from his high place and destroyed. And, and the indication that we are given here is, is that lies and deception are the weapons of choice in this attack uh, that seeks to defeat him. And, it, and I think it clues us in to the spiritual nature of these attacks, because we know that Satan is the father of lies. We know that from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, uh, he utilized deception in order to try to defeat mankind. So I think we see that here. There's, there's this spiritual nature to these attacks. And uh, but what I really want to focus on, what I really want to point out in, these, in this statement is, is where David talks about uh, his enemies want him to fall from his high position, thrust him down from his high position. In reading different Bible commentators, most would connect that phrase with David's position as king, king of Israel. Um, And no doubt, that was an elevated position that brought out enemies seeking to destroy David and to destroy God's people, Israel. But based on the description of God in verses 1 and 2, and again in in 5 and 7, which we'll see shortly, I think David is referencing something else. And, And I want to go back for a moment to verses 1 and 2 and focus on two specific words, and they're both in verse two, rock and fortress. David refers to God as both of those, his rock and his fortress. Now, when we think about God being a rock and a fortress, we rightly see him as strong and immovable and secure and steadfast, And we should think about God that way when we consider security in God. But the two Hebrew words that are translated into the English words rock and fortress both speak about something additionally. Um, A a more literal translation of the Hebrew word for rock would be something like my high rocky summit or or my high rocky cliff. It it speaks of a, a picture of something high up. And and a more literal translation of the Hebrew word for fortress would be something like my elevated place or my lofty place. So both Hebrew words speak about security that comes from being in a high place. Now, you know, it makes me think back to Psalm 11 from last week because David's advisors said, hey, David, you know, flee to the mountains, go up to that high place, Get, get to a place of safety. They maybe weren't completely wrong in suggesting that David find refuge in a high place. Um, but rather than fleeing to a physically high place, like they suggested, they ought to have suggested finding refuge in a spiritually high place, in God Himself. And so when when David speaks of God as his rock and his fortress, he sees himself high and secure in God. And I think this is why his enemies wanted to thrust him down from that high position. I, I don't think it was just that he was king, I think it was his position in God. The spiritual forces opposed to David weren't so concerned about his position as king so much as his position as high and secure in God. And so they attacked him with lies and curses, they wanted to see him fall from that high position. Now, I have to wonder, I have to wonder, if if David is so high and secure in God, why would his enemies even attack him? I I mean, if if God truly is who David believes him to be, if, if his confidence in God is rightly placed, then aren't his enemies just wasting their time? I mean, there can't be any real danger to David when he's taking refuge in God, right? When he's in that high, secure place, I mean, what could the enemies possibly do? So I was chewing on that and, and reflecting on that and, uh, and looking at the verses that, that followed, and, and it finally hit me that David isn't in any danger as it pertains to his high position in God. He's not. The danger comes If David leaves that high position for whatever reason if he stops taking refuge in God and and it reminded me of something that I'll sometimes hear in discussions pertaining to eternal security whether or not a person can lose their salvation Now, now I'm not saying this psalm addresses that topic I don't think it does I'm just simply wanting to use a similar analogy that I've heard that I think pertains to this psalm. So so those who, who argue from the Bible that, that there is the possibility of a person losing their salvation, you still have to give account for verses like Romans 8, 38 and 39. Which, which say that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you still have to, you have to be able to do something with that verse. And th- there's clearly nothing in creation that's strong enough to separate us from God. We cannot be pulled out of the loving grasp of God. But those who hold to the possibility of of, uh, losing one's salvation would state that, well, yeah, we can't be forcibly removed from God's salvation, but they would say we can choose to freely walk away from it. And again, I I don't think Psalm 62 addresses eternal security, but I think David gives us a warning in verses 5 through 7 about choosing to leave that high, secure place in God not looking to him for refuge. So look with me at verses 5 through 7. So again, David has stated the threat in verses 3 and 4. In verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock my refuge is God. Now those verses are very similar to to verses 1 and 2, but we we need to be sure to note the subtle differences in them. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, David spoke boldly and confidently about his soul waiting in God. In verse 5, David now speaks directly to his soul and seems to be reminding it to wait in silence. So verse 1 says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. You hear the difference there? Uh, In verse 1, David confidently said his salvation comes from God. In verse 5, David puts his hope in God. And, And there's nothing wrong with putting hope in God. We absolutely should do that. But But do you sense how it's not quite as firm of a statement as verse 1? I mean, in verse 1, you know, salvation comes from God. Verse 5, my hope is in God. So in the face of attacks which cannot destroy him while he takes refuge in God, it seems like David still finds it necessary to remind himself that those attacks cannot destroy him. I think he's reminding himself to stay put in that high and secure place which God has provided for him. You know, you and I may have confidence like David that God is our high and secure rock and fortress. But in the moments when we are being attacked by our enemy, it's good to remind ourselves of that. It's good to remind ourselves of who God is and the fact that he is that high and secure place. Uh, it, it's like the lyrics uh, from the, the first song that we sang, Faithful Now. Uh, those lyrics say, I'll speak to my fear and preach to my doubt, right? It's, it, it's in those times where fear and doubt can creep in that we have to proclaim the truth to ourselves. And specifically regarding the truth about God's character and his work in the world and the fact that we can find refuge in him. David seems to be speaking to his own fear and, and preaching to his own doubt in these, in these verses. But I, but I think he's speaking to us too. He, he's speaking to his own soul, but, but, but to us. After verse 7, the focus shifts. It shifts from David talking about himself using I and my, and he starts talking to us. He says, you and your. So uh, verse 8, David says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, if I had to pick one verse to sum up this psalm, I think verse 8 would be the one. Trust in God at all times, pour out your heart to God. God is a refuge for you. Those are wonderful words, are they not? I mean, they, they are words that are needed in a fallen, chaotic world in which we live. But I also want to recognize that the situations we face in life can make those words difficult, difficult to believe, difficult to follow. Things like like death or disease or divorce or abuse or neglect or, or abandonment can, can cause us to doubt the truth of those words, can cause us to consider walking away from God, our refuge. And, and if that's how you're feeling right now, I wanna encourage you to consider the rest of what David says in Psalm 62 that we're not going to find refuge anywhere else. It won't happen. And in verse 9, he points out how people don't provide that security for us. Whether they are high or low, they're like a breath. They're like a breath. here a moment and then gone. And, and you know, that's true when we consider the brevity of our lives. But I, I think that's also true when we, when we consider our tendency to fail one another. Right? If, our, if our substance were to be measured on a balance or a scale, like he talks about, it would go up, right? We would be shown to be lighter than a breath. Like that, that, that's what we consist of. And, and so our, our trust cannot be in people. David, in essence, says we're not going to find that security or that refuge in people. And then he goes on in verse 10 and, and lets us know our, our trust can't be in money either. Verse 10 states that, that whether we come across our money honestly or dishonestly, we ought not put our, our trust, our hopes, or our heart in money. I mean, that, it's a funny thing to put my trust in pieces of paper with dead presidents' faces on it, isn't it? And yet it's so tempting to do. I, I, I can't fully explain it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that works, but, but I know the temptation's there. But just like with people, money will be here for a moment and, and then it's gone. And, and so just like with people, our trust cannot be in money. It's not going to provide the security and refuge that we need. So the only true rock, true fortress, true refuge, true salvation that we will find is God himself. And so, when, when we're upset with or, or confused by or uncertain about God, it, it might feel like trusting in Him at all times, like verse 8 says, pouring out our heart before Him are the last things that we want to do. Uh, I mean, we've probably felt that at times. But let, let's, let's consider David's closing words in Psalm 62 because this is how he wraps up the psalm. He says in verse 11, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. So power belongs to God, and to the Lord belongs steadfast love. And if you think about it, both of those characteristics are absolutely essential if we're going to find security in God, our refuge. Because if power doesn't belong to God, then what's the point? What's the point of seeking security in him? If power does not belong to God, then he cannot protect us. He cannot give us victory. He he cannot provide what we need. And on the other hand, if Steadfast love does not belong to God, then what's the point of seeking security in Him? Because if, if steadfast love doesn't belong to Him, then He might choose not to protect us, even though He's capable. He might choose to not give us victory. He he might choose to not provide what we need. But because power and steadfast love both belong to God. He can and he will protect us. He can and he will give us victory. He he can and he will provide what we need. And and really the ultimate expression of that combination of power and steadfast love is what we see on the table before us this morning. Uh, Jesus' death and his resurrection are the ultimate displays. Of the power of god and the steadfast love of god all together in the same action you know jesus jesus willingness to offer himself upon the cross for sinful humanity sinful you sinful me uh, it's an expression of love that is unparalleled and and in the bible states it this way it says by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's the not quite as famous verse, 1 John 3.16, but also a good one worth memorizing. By this we know what love is. So if you or I question God's steadfast love for us, then we ought to look to the table as a reminder. We ought to regularly take communion as a way to preach to our doubt, if we can use the lyrics of that song again. Uh, partaking of the bread and the juice is a, is a firm reminder that we can take refuge in God because of his steadfast love for us. And then likewise, the very reason that the act of communion has any significance whatsoever is because after Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. I mean, there's our display of power, right? I mean, uh, Paul stated to the Philippian church that he, he wanted to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. That power has brought defeat to death, and it has brought victory to you and me. So if you or I question God's power, again, we ought to look to the table. In order to be reminded. Um, that the church of Jesus has been partaking of the bread and the juice for the past 2,000 years. I mean, what we do this morning has been done for two millennia. It's a reminder to us that we can take refuge in God because of his power. If there was no power there, this would have stopped a long time ago. There would have been no point in doing this. But the church has continued it because the power behind it is absolutely real. You know, I I think about David here in Psalm 62. Uh, You know, David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Um, He stated this a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth that power and steadfast love belong to God. I doubt David knew the incredible depth of which he spoke. I mean, I think he was right to say what he said, but I don't know if he knew the depth of those words. I mean, what he saw incompletely in his day was later shown completely through Jesus. And how blessed we are to live on the other side of that, to, to be able to see more clearly than even David could, the steadfast love and the power of God. And so the reality that we can take refuge in him. And so we're going to take communion together this morning. Um, the elders will come forward and, and we're going to serve you. And and in addition, uh, uh, as we pass out the bread, Val is going to sing uh, a song for us. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Um, the first verse of that song talks about the lamb who... Who rescues the souls of men. Uh, David knew in Psalm 62 that that God could rescue his soul, provide salvation to his soul. I mean, he stated that. That's why he urged his soul to wait silently upon God. But again, I, I, I don't think David knew the depth of salvation that would eventually be made available to his soul through the work of God through the work of Jesus upon the cross. But here we are today people who who know the depth of salvation made available through Jesus. And so we are reminded of that we we reflect upon that through our participation together in communion. And so as we come to the to the table this morning let's Let's remember that. Let's remember that God is a refuge for us. Let's pour out our heart to him and trust in him at all times to provide the the security, the, the saving that we desperately need. So let's come together now.